from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March 18th. Today, massive steps to save the U.S. economy, the role of tech companies in tracking the outbreak, and signs of the apocalypse. The coronavirus has caused a transformation in economic policy thinking beyond what anyone could have possibly believed, even, I would say, four or five days ago. We have to help everybody. It was nobody's fault. This happened. Within the span of a few days, we've seen the president of the United States, a conservative Republican, and his Wall Street-aligned Treasury Secretary call for sending $1,000 checks to every American in the country, an idea that is a dramatic expansion of the government in line with what few people thought possible. Today, we obtained a memo from the Treasury Department that contained the administration's full ask from Congress for what it could do to prop up the economy in these difficult times. And it really showed just how quickly things are moving. And and that reflects, I think, obviously, um, the widespread fear about the damage coronavirus is doing to, you know, the livelihoods of hundreds of millions of Americans at an extremely fast rate. Okay, so who are you and what do you do? My name is Jeff Stein. I'm the White House economics reporter. And where are you right now? I'm at home, hoping my puppy does not start barking at any moment. (laughs) Hi, Acorn. So there's this push right now to send individual checks to Americans across the country because basically everyone is hurting right now. But then there's also this effort to provide bailouts to companies. That's right. And this is uh, perhaps the most politically controversial part of the administration's ask. We've been reporting on this for a while. We've known it's coming. I've been talking to officials in the White House, other parts of the administration, people who are in touch with them. And they've been describing this growing move, this growing recognition that they're going to have to do something, at least this is what they think, for some huge American industries that have taken it on the chin. And Today, we finally found out for certain that the administration is asking for $50 billion for the airline industry. They've also, we've reported that they're interested in providing emergency help to the cruise lines, to the hotels, um, to the oil and gas industry, which has been hit by very low energy prices. We've also heard that the casinos are making a big ask um, for, for bailout funding, although it's not clear if the administration is on board with that. And we've been waiting to figure out what is the White House going to say? They, they, you know, what are they going to ask for specifically? Which industries are they going to prioritize here? And today we learned that they're asking for $50 billion for the airlines and $150 billion for industries that are, quote, severely distressed as a result of coronavirus. And I mean, this just broke about an hour ago, but some of the Democrats I've spoken to think that this amounts to essentially a bailout slush fund is what they called it. This is money that the administration, if approved, could use for whatever industries it feels like uh, needs the help the most. And Trump has personal ties to the casinos and the hotels, and giving him that power could be a real sticking point for Congress. But that $150 billion, would that also be applicable to small businesses or restaurants or places that have had to shut down because of the public health emergency? That's a good question. The administration has a separate pool of money that they say in addition to the money for distressed industries that are for small businesses overall. It's not really clear to us 
if that is overlapping with the bailout money, but that fund would have a cap. It only applies to businesses with fewer than 500 employees. I mean, some people on Twitter today were pointing out that that's not really a small business if you have 400 employees, but the way the administration is characterizing it is they're offering low interest or I think zero interest loans um, to get through this period um, it's about $300 billion and would apply to firms with under 500 employees. So they have something for small businesses, they have something for individuals, and they have something for um, severely impact- impacted industries in the form of bailouts. So that's, that's a, a maybe a useful way to think about the three main funding asks the White House is putting forward here. Of course, Congress has its own say, and they need congressional approval for all of this. And Congress could come up and say, we're not doing any of this. We've seen a lot from progressive Democrats in particular who are saying, look, if you guys are going to help these industries, we need to use this opportunity to implement key reforms. Senator Elizabeth Warren yesterday said that if any of these businesses get bailout monies, they have to commit to a $15 an hour minimum wage. They have to commit to uh, ensuring that nobody gets kicked off of the payroll. They need to ensure that workers get representation on uh, the corporate board of directors. Ask that um, reflect longstanding progressive priorities, but they're saying, you know, if we're going to provide taxpayer money to helping you, you need to reciprocate by providing things that are in the public interest. So I'm extremely interested to see how this fight will play out. And I think that one of the reasons why people have reacted so strongly to the idea of bailing out particularly big corporations, the airline industry, the casino industry, is that A, it feels like these corporations are always getting bailouts in a time of crisis in a way that individuals don't always see for themselves. But also, I mean, I think the airline industry is a great example of an industry that has made money hand over fist for the last few years. And like, what is the argument for why they would need the money now? It's a good question. Um, What Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin would tell you is after 9-11, the airlines were given low interest loans as sort of bridge loans to get through that period because the terrorist attacks of 9-11 were something that happened through no fault of their own and, and this money was necessary to help them get through that period. They're sort of trying to put it in that precedent to say we've done this before for the airlines when they got hit by something that wasn't their fault. So let's just do that again. But But to your point, a number of Democrats are saying the airlines have spent millions of dollars over the last few years on dividend payments, on executive bonuses, on things that, you know, a lot of people are pointing out they could have been putting towards um, a rainy day fund for something like this happening. The, The airline industry, the cruise industry, should these folks have been preparing for something like this and buffeted against that risk. And if we bail them out, are we rewarding them to take further risks in the future? And this is not just liberals and Democrats making this point. Conservative Senator Rick Scott of Florida has been very outspoken that this is a huge mistake and that there should be no bailout funding whatsoever. And then these direct cash payments to Americans, how would that actually work? And and people are talking about getting this money to people in the next two weeks. Is that actually logistically possible? Yeah, that's what Mnuchin said. And I've heard differing opinions. There are some people, I've talked to a number of former IRS officials about this, and some of them say, it's a tall order, but they could maybe do it. It would You would have to probably use the Social Security Administration, people's Social Security numbers. But how do you reach homeless people? How do you reach people in, in prisons? Are these things that are easily done by the administration? I think the answer to that is pretty clearly no. There is some precedent, as I mentioned, for rebate checks, tax rebates, and that's 
the precedent that a lot of people in the administration have been citing. But as I learned yesterday, those took six months from when they were first discussed to make it to people's homes and uh, three months from implementation of the law to the checks arriving at people's homes. And now (laughs) Mnuchin and Trump are saying two weeks. So never say never. I mean, this has been, as I'm sure you guys have felt, uh, just a a surreal experience to live through. And maybe we'll see more things that are just off the walls compared to what we expected. But but that's what they're saying. And, and how the IRS could do that will be an enormous challenge. They're already dealing with the uh, huge complications of trying to prepare for next month's tax filing season at the same time that the administration is delaying a number of taxes. Um, so the IRS is already really have, has their hands full on them to simultaneously administer this kind of program. The administration is considering an income cap. Mnuchin was very firm about this, but we haven't gotten the number yet. Well, I think it's clear we don't need to send people who make a million dollars a year checks, okay? But uh, we like, that's one of the ideas we like. Uh, We're going to preview that today, and then we'll be talking about details afterwards. Well, it feels like that's the big question, right? Is like who would actually be able to benefit from this and and what level of income you would have to have to be able to get these checks? But also, is it applicable to all U.S. citizens? Is it applicable to everyone who pays taxes, which includes many non-citizens? Who is the body of people that we're talking about? That's a great question. And, and the, the summary that we have obtained from the Treasury Department does not make that clear either way. And they've also said, you know, if you're making above, a, a, we don't know what the income threshold is. I've heard loose speculation that it could be 100, 200, 250,000 a year. If you make more than that, you don't qualify. But the question about citizens is a really good one. I think. Hi, Acorn. <laughs> I think there would be a, a backlash. Um, from Democrats, if if non-citizens are excluded, there's, you know, uh, over 10 million undocumented people living in this country who are also affected by the downturn caused by the coronavirus and no less in need. Um, whether Republicans go along with that is a, I don't know. When you take all this money together, billions and billions of dollars for corporations and, and loans for small businesses and individual checks to Americans who are going to be struggling in the coming weeks and months, Is that actually going to be enough? Because it does seem like we are in really uncharted territories right now. When you look at other uh, economic downturns from the past, from from maybe the past couple decades, they they seem really different from what's happening now. Like, yes, there was a downturn after September 11th, but that was the one event. And then right after, people were encouraged to go back out and start spending money and start traveling again. Or if you look at the recession, like that was something that was rooted in the housing market and in, and in mortgages and in banking that had repercussions for everyone, but it kind of came from one place. And it feels like what's happening now is Everything is shutting down in every way and everyone is affected all at the same time. And it's hard to know whether what people are talking about in the White House and on Capitol Hill will be adequate to really address something that we've never seen before. Yeah. And and liberal, conservative, socialist, libertarian, everyone on the economic spectrum right now, all of the economists are actually kind of consistent and unified in, in the fact that the economic damage will continue until the administration and this country gets a handle on the public health side of it. When we look at, you know, this economic 
distress we're seeing and this economic devastation, really. Yesterday, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said the unemployment rate could rise to 20%, which would be unseen level since the Great Depression. That is all really downstream from the issues on the public health side and, and the inability to deal with the, the health ramifications and make sure that people can go safely to work without worrying about getting sick. So, I mean, until that's contained, all this economic talk will be largely secondary. I'll, I'll just add that, you know, the administration has pushed this, these two $1,000 checks. And, and that obviously will be very meaningful to, I think, most people. But there are people who will have high medical bills, um, who will be laid off, and a number of Democrats say that there are other parts of the safety net that have to be shorn up for us to get through this without tremendous, tremendous pain being inflicted, particularly on the poor and working class. Um, there's talk about you know increasing unemployment benefits, increasing Medicaid so poor people can get their health care without um, going into bankruptcy, uh, increasing uh, food stamps, senior nutrition, food for um, children, all of these things. Um, it's almost hard to wrap your mind around how big problems and the holes that are now created in our economy by this. But again, this is just all band-aids until the coronavirus health situation is taken care of. Jeff Stein is the White House economics reporter for The Post. The White House, U.S. government health officials, and lots of folks from the tech industry are talking about new ways to tap their troves of location data to help with the public response to the coronavirus outbreak in the United States. A lot of these companies, whether it's Facebook or Google, have information about you and about your peers based on uh, information collected by your smartphone. Every time you, you know, use an app to find the closest doctor's office or something and you're trying to navigate there on Google Maps or you're posting the location of a photo you took on a site like Instagram. The goal here, and, and this is still early days, is taking all of that data and trying to figure out if there are some insights that we can glean for the public health response to coronavirus. So can we see, for example, that, you know, whether social distancing is making a big difference in stopping the outbreak? Or can we predict maybe that hospitals are uh, at the verge of capacity or that there are particular high-risk areas in the United States? That sort of thing. I am Tony Rahm, and I'm a tech policy reporter at The Post. So what would that actually look like? Like, how could your phone know who has the virus and know who it needs to track to be able to figure out what the path of the virus is? Well, first, it's important to talk about exactly what your phone collects about you in the first place, right? Every time you're using your phone, you're using Google Maps, for instance, or you're using Facebook or whatnot, a lot of those apps are collecting information about where you are, often sometimes to give you services you're looking for, like the ability to navigate down city streets, but sometimes because they collect that data for things like advertising. And so the question that a lot of folks in government and in the private sector were asking is, can we take that trove of data and put it to use in trying to track the spread of coronavirus? 
coronavirus or try to track the troubles that might be associated with high-risk areas that are affected by coronavirus. And so the conversations that we reported on today, you know, they're not about assessing individuals who might be affected. We're not even talking about one specific user and their data about where they are, but rather, can we look at the whole of that data and come up with some insights about, you know, where there might be some high-risk areas? Are there statistics about folks who may be affected? You know, can we just put that data to use in some sort of helpful way to combat coronavirus? And and so the fact that the tech community is collaborating with the government on this, is that surprising? It is, then it isn't. On one hand, the U.S. government works with tech companies on a whole bunch of stuff. That's happened for a long time. And on coronavirus in particular, we've seen a lot more of that collaboration. And so Silicon Valley and Washington have been talking a great deal about what they can do to expand telehealth services, for example, or teleworking services, and even to ensure that the information that Americans are seeing online about coronavirus is accurate and not harmful misinformation. But when you're talking about using data in novel ways, like the government is with tech companies right now, that's something that's a little bit new because so many folks in this industry were stung many, many years ago when the conversation we were having was about government surveillance and the extent to which the U.S. government was collecting data from these sites and services and from users around the world, sometimes without their knowledge or their permission. And so that legacy, that the thing that was brought to light by the revelations from Edward Snowden really has hung over a lot of this collaboration, but we're beginning to see a lot more willingness on the part of industry to work with government on data projects like this. But it also seems like sometimes the government and tech companies are not quite on the same page on this. I mean, even as recently as last week, when you had President Trump talking about how he's collaborating with Google on a website to help with coronavirus, and then no such website really existed, and it just felt like a confusing mess. Right. And now Google is in the process of actually rolling out some of the services that have been talked about uh, when President Trump was briefing reporters in the rest of the country. I want to thank Google. Google is helping to develop a website. It's going to be very quickly done, unlike websites of the past, to determine whether a test is warranted and to facilitate testing at a nearby convenient location. And so, yeah, there have been some hiccups, but I think if you talk to folks in government and you talk to them in the tech industry, they would say that for the most part on coronavirus, the relationship has been a productive one. And so, for example, the White House and the tech industry put out a portal where researchers can access thousands and thousands of research papers about coronavirus. And those papers are presented in such a way that uh, the people behind artificial intelligence, so those powerful tools that can scan lots of data in mass, uh, can read through through all those papers and perhaps create their own analyses of, of what they're finding, maybe crunch the numbers in ways that a human couldn't because they couldn't go through 29,000 research papers all in one sitting. So if we're talking about this new idea of using location data to help with containing the spread of coronavirus, is that something that other places, other countries have tried? We've certainly seen a number of countries try this kind of thing. Uh, we've seen it in South Korea. We've seen it in Singapore. We just had a report yesterday about efforts in Israel to kind of tap cell phone location data. And it's all come in very, very different ways, stemming in some part from the cultures in those countries between the government and the tech sector 
sector and their relationship with privacy. And so, for example, you can go onto this public portal for Singapore, for example, and you can see every individual who has contracted coronavirus and track uh, where they went throughout the country. There aren't names there that's anonymized, but it's an astounding amount of data that would allow anybody to try to figure out, you know, did they occupy the same building or occupy the same room as somebody who later got diagnosed? Now, you're not likely to see that in the United States. There would be a complete blowback, not just from average web users who would find it as a violation of privacy, but from the companies themselves uh, who don't want to surrender that level of granular private data. But that, again, just sort of speaks to the differences between the United States and some other countries when it comes to the relationship between government and business, the impacts of free speech, the concerns around privacy and so forth. I think that one of the things that makes this such a tempting collaboration for the government with the tech community is because testing has been so bad so far. So just getting a handle on who has it, who doesn't, where they've been going, there's not a lot of data on that. So I can see the desire to try to find any other forms of data that can help at least figure out where people are moving or how people are moving and that could help scientists track the where the virus is going. But at the same time, it feels like the privacy concerns are not a thing that people are just going to forget about, especially after so many revelations from the last few years about how tech companies are using data in ways that we never agreed to. Right. I mean, right now, we know that there are some problems and we know the kinds of data that the government is looking for. I think the feds and you know public health experts would love to be able to figure out if things like social distancing in the United States are actually proving effective or if people are congregating even though they shouldn't be. There is a desire to see high risk areas and to do as much as the government can with data to figure out if hospitals or other critical institutions might be overrun. But there's this timeless debate that we have in this country uh, when it comes to issues around data and around privacy, when we know that there's a major, perhaps national or international urgent need, but also we recognize that there are important civil liberties to protect. And so often we have this conversation in the security context when we're talking about what exactly we should do with, you know, very important tranches of data, very sensitive and detailed tranches of data that might help law enforcement officials try to track down criminals or track down terrorists. And often we draw lines there. We say, you know, this is too much. You know, getting into one's private conversations might be a step too far. We've we've created limits there between privacy and security. And now we're having a similar kind of conversation, but instead of security in the most traditional physical sense, we're talking about public health. And so this is exactly what everyone dealing with this in Washington right now is trying to figure out. At what point is it crossing the line? At what point is using this data beneficial to everybody and, you know, the sort of uh, sacrifice you want to make? And at what point is it invading their privacy? And making these decisions when the circumstances feel so urgent, I feel like that often weighs things on the side of taking risks to people's privacy that we might not be taking if we weren't sort of facing this imminent public health crisis but all of a sudden things seem really bad and people might be okay with things that they wouldn't otherwise be okay with. Potentially, we don't know. I mean, but 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 I can't stress enough that it's it's such early days with this project that that we don't know a whole lot about exactly what the U.S. government's going to get or exactly what the industry is going to produce. What we do know is that there's some things that they're not going to do, and one of those is start sharing information about you and I. You know, the government's not going to be able to take this database and find you know my smartphone and where my smartphone went. That 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 seems to be off limits in this conversation. I think a lot of the companies would not be comfortable with sharing that data, and the other. 
thing that sources consistently told us was that the government is not building its own database. You know, we're not going to see the creation of some CDC database of every American's location. This is about harnessing this trove of information that often is used for things like advertising and trying to see if there are insights that we can glean that would help us deliver better public health responses in the middle of an outbreak. Tony Rahm writes about tech policy for The Post. Now, one more thing. If you look around right now, it might feel like the end of the world. The supermarket shelves are bare. Everyone is home. People are not seeing the people they normally see going about their daily routines. Times Square is empty. It feels like the apocalypse. But people who consider themselves experts on the apocalypse, the Christian scholars who study the book of Revelation, who preach day in and day out in normal times about the end times, I went to talk to some of them, and their consensus was, rest assured, this is not the end times. My name is Julie Zosmer. I'm a religion reporter at The Post. First of all, the Book of Revelation, in their interpretation, deals a lot with the state of Israel. They're looking at Israel for signs, and while Israel is suffering greatly from coronavirus and many people in Israel are in quarantine, that's not in the book. Uh, They're looking for political events in Israel. They're looking for a treaty to be signed, for the nation to be divided up, for all these things that are talked about in scripture, which haven't happened yet. Second, there's a political explanation here. Many of these pastors who preach on the end times are evangelical pastors who are politically very conservative, who are big fans of President Trump. My colleague Sarah talked to a scholar who studies end times prophecies in the charismatic and Pentecostal movements, and he said that they're big fans of President Trump. And believe it or not, since the 2016 election, their predictions have gotten a whole lot more optimistic. All of a sudden, they don't think the end times are coming quite so soon. You know, the Bible says you will not know the date or the hour, and most of these prophecies stick to that. They say they can't tell you exactly when, but, you know, we talked to one person who calls himself an apostolic prophet. He says the Lord has shown him events through 2026, so we've got at least that long. Julie Zosmer covers religion for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you've got someone in your life who's stuck at home and trying to make sense of what's happening in the world right now, let them know about Post Reports. If you send them to postreports.com, they can check out our episode archive and listen back to recent stories about social distancing and coronavirus testing and the political fallout of the outbreak. Find all that at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Actually, we have one more, one more thing. Right now, we're working on something big. We want to know how the coronavirus is affecting you. And we mean everybody. 
If you are a college student, a bartender, a small business owner, a nurse, a campaign volunteer, a lawyer, a driver, a farmer, a parent, a retiree. Whoever you are, we're painting a picture of the pandemic from different perspectives, over time, maybe for months, in detail. We'll be sharing your ongoing stories on Post Reports and on our other podcasts at The Post. If you're interested in taking part, please record a voice memo. Tell us who you are in as much detail as you like and how the coronavirus is affecting your life. Then send this voice memo to us at postreports at washpost.com. We're excited to hear from you.